And an amen. Uh, good morning to you all. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 14, we're working our way through several books right now at the same time, and the next chapter we'll look at in Revelation is Revelation 14. Years ago, I pastored a little country church in Louisiana, and it was in the middle of wheat fields, corn fields, soybean fields, and so there's a lot of talk about planting, cultivating, and harvesting. And um, periodically, people would have bad crops. And there was a saying that went around at times in the church, uh, that must have been a Sunday crop, meaning they must have planted and cultivated on Sunday. That's why the crop didn't do very well. And so that's a way of trying to understand the harvest, understand why things played out the way they did, why things, uh, you know, what was sown didn't turn out to be what they uh, got in the end. Well, we want to talk about the final harvest, and that's the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. If you want to think about the Bible in terms of how you can summarize what the Bible says, you could say, the Bible declares God is good, we are not, Jesus is the only Savior for sinners, we must repent and believe, we must trust and love. In a sense, that's the Bible. God is good, we are not. And there are implications to the fact that God's good and we are not. The good news is Jesus is a Savior for sinners, but he's the only Savior for sinners. And so therefore, our relationship to Jesus is paramount. And that's what the Bible calls us, to repent and believe in Jesus. And then for those who repent and believe, he calls us to trust and love. And to trust and love no matter what, no matter how hard things get, no matter how difficult things might even be in the Bible that we read, that we trust and love to the very end. And so that's what we will find touched on in various ways in Revelation chapter 14. Uh, I think um, Revelation, uh, for my lifetime, since I became a Christian, has been my favorite book, even though it's a very difficult book. But it's a book filled with hope. It's a book filled with victory. It's a book filled with God's sovereign grace and goodness over a very sinful and fallen world. And so what we find in the book of Revelation is we find the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning over everything for the good of his people. And we find, uh, talk about things that will characterize everything that will take place from from the first coming of Christ until the second coming of Christ. It talks about what history is going to look like. And then it also talks about what it will look like just before Christ returns. And then it talks about what it will look like as Christ returns. And then it'll talk about what it's going to look like forever and ever after everything is said and done in this world. And so it's a grand and glorious book, and yet there are hard passages in this book as well. And Revelation 14 is one of those uh, passages. But the history of the world is really a history pregnant with hope. And someone uh, a few weeks ago said, could you just uh, maybe... Let us know what you think about how things are going to play out. So I'm going to try and do that uh, this morning by letting you know where I believe Revelation 14 fits in in the grand picture of uh, things with regard to eschatology. 
And so when I think about the history of the world, and when I say it's pregnant with hope, uh, I believe the Bible talks in various ways about the fact that you can picture world history as a pregnancy. That in the very beginning, God created everything good, and then man sins. And so Genesis uh, 1 and 2 is God creating everything good. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. And right after the fall of man, God promises a savior who will crush the head of the serpent. And you could say that is the conception of all that God intended to do in light of that fall. There was a promise of a savior. The whole Old Testament is like the pregnancy. You know, uh, the world history is pregnant with the hope of a savior. It's preparing for a savior. It's preparing for the coming of the savior. And then you have the, the coming of Christ. And in the Gospels and in the New Testament, you find that with the coming of Christ and his life and death and resurrection and ascension, you have a world that's actually in labor. And Paul can talk about the, the creation groaning for the revealing of the sons of God, that the, that the history right now is in labor, so to speak. But when, when we get close to the return of Christ, we're going to be uh, toward the end of active labor, which, which is called transition. For those of you who are familiar with the labor terminology, it's when things tend to get very intense and painful in various ways. And that, I think, is actually where we are in this portion of the book of Revelation. We're talking about things that are going to happen that announce the fact that the coming of Christ is very near. And things are getting hard and difficult in light of that. Then after that, you have the day of the Lord with the the bold judgments, and that's when the final push toward the new heavens and the new earth comes And then at the very end of Revelation, you have the birth of Paradise 2.0. It started out with Paradise. It will end in Paradise. But the the coming Paradise is much grander and greater than ever the first Paradise that was lost was. And so for me, uh, what I see happening is God is going to let us know when the coming of Christ is near. I don't think... Uh, Christians will be caught off guard. Over and over it says, we are not to be asleep. We are to be alert. And Jesus could say, uh, when these things happen, when these leaves of the fig tree begin to fall, so to speak, or or appear, uh, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. And so there must be something we can see and identify as believers that will let us know. And so that's where I believe we are in, in the book of Revelation. That's my perspective on history and eschatology just very briefly and hopefully that's helpful you can ask me if you need some clarification still but what i'd like to do is have us look at revelation 14 and just take it section by section that might be the easiest thing to do but i want us to look at how this chapter uh, talks about a secure salvation a final call to repentance and two gatherings in the end And I pray that God would help us find much good encouragement from it, um, even though there will be some really challenging things in this chapter. So first of all, if you would, look at verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Just a reminder, this is a picture book. It's the picture book of King Jesus. And so what we have here are pictures that are meant to tell us the truth. It's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, And so we understand that these are uh, pictures that are meant to be figurative, pointing to things that are real. But real in a sense that um, it would take many more words to say all that these pictures are are representing for us. And so in verse 1, we have the Lamb who's standing on Mount Zion. Evidently, this Mount Zion is actually a heavenly scene because it goes on to talk about them singing before the throne and the um, living creatures and all those kinds uh, in the uh, heavenly realm. But the lamb is there, and the lamb, we know, is a picture of Jesus. John said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the 144,000 are standing in the presence of the lamb, which means the only reason they're there is because of Jesus who took away their sin as a lamb, as a substitute in their place. Now, the 144,000 are also talked about in Revelation 7, and it says all of them were sealed before judgment came. But there's another picture in that same chapter that talks about uh, an innumerable multitude, a countless multitude standing before God. And the implication is the 144,000 and the countless multitude are the same group of people. 144 is 12 times 12, 144,000 times 1,000. So it's a picture of the new Israel. And the new Israel are all the believers in Jesus, Jew and Gentile. And so the picture of the 144,000 are all believers who are sealed with the Holy Spirit and protected by God, no matter what happens on this earth earth. And so the picture here is a picture of the 144,000 or all the people of God, all the believers in Jesus, secure in heaven. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, in Revelation 13, you have a discussion of two beasts. You have the discussion of the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. The beast from the sea represents the Antichrist who is out to kill all the people of God. And he serves as, you could say, the personification of Satan. Then you've got the beast from the land, who is the false prophet, who encourages everyone to worship the Antichrist. And so the picture that we see in Revelation 13 is one of seemingly an invincible opposition to the people of God. The devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, a world that worships Uh, the beast and submits to the beast and is out to snuff out the people of God. And so what we find in Revelation 14 is the encouragement that regardless of how 
significant the opposition to God's people might appear, they will not succeed. That God's people will be protected and brought safely home. And it says that the name of Jesus and the name of the Father are written on their heads, their foreheads. That's a picture of belonging and character. So in Revelation 13, those who worship the beast also have the mark of the beast on the forehead and on the hand, which speaks of belonging and character to Satan and the beast. In this case, those who believe in Jesus, they belong to Jesus and they reflect the character of Jesus and therefore God protects them, protects us and meets our needs. So... Basically, I don't know how you think about how things are going in our country, but it certainly looks like unless God sends an awakening, a revival of some kind, that we're headed on a a very poor trajectory. Things get pretty bad in all kinds of ways if things don't change. And God might change things. But if he doesn't, if he just gives us over to our sin, gives us over to ourselves, lets us reap what we've sown in this country by murdering babies and doing all kinds of things. If he lets us reap what we've sown as a country, things will get more difficult. So how should we feel about that as God's people? Well, over and over again throughout the Bible in various ways, the Bible says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. God says, I will take care of you. You're you're mine, and I take care of my own. And so that's the picture that we see being painted here. And there's all kinds of things that I believe will take place at the end, right before Jesus comes back. Uh, the appearance of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him in Second Thessalonians. The great apostasy is the same thing, I believe, as what we find in Revelation 13 when it talks about the false prophet encouraging everyone to worship the beast. Um, there are other things that... Uh, could happen. It talks about significant natural natural disasters. It talks about great persecution on the church. All those kinds of things, I think, will happen before Christ returns, right before Christ returns. And obviously, it's happening to one degree already uh, around the world. But the point is that um, this chapter, in various ways, is talking to to believers to say, you're going to make it through. No matter how hard it will get, you can trust God. God will be with us. And that's why Romans 8 is so important, because it says in verse 31, What then, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? Which means there's a lot of people against us. There's a lot of things against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all against us. But with God, it's like nothing or no one is against us compared to God. And that same passage goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ, which we sang about this morning. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Think about that. You conquer through... Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, which sounds like defeat, but it's not defeat. 
because we conquer through him who loves us and will protect us and provide for us and carry us through. And therefore, that's what we have in these first verses is we have a picture of the saints singing to God, singing a new song. Uh, There's a song by a group uh, entitled, um, I think it's entitled, uh, His Favorite Song of All. And in that song, it talks about how creation sings in various ways. And God loves to hear creation sing in various ways. But God's favorite song is the song of the redeemed. That's his favorite song of all. John Newton (coughs) wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. We will go through many dangers, many fearful things, many difficult things, but we do not have to be afraid. There's an interesting story in Acts chapter 27 where Paul is being taken to Rome and he's on a ship and the ship is going through this terrible storm and they're all afraid they're going to drown and die. And God tells Paul, you're going to make it because you're going to testify in Rome. And he tells them, God says, we're going to make it. And yet they go through days and days of a terrible storm. The ship wrecks, and they have to all just get on various pieces of uh, parts of the boat as it splits up and, and gradually make their way to shore. But every one of them survives. But they survive through very rough waters. And it's not like God just kind of picks them up in a helicopter and takes them to shore. They get to shore, but it's through very difficult waters and, and in a way that you would think, well, I thought God was going to save us. He is. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be uh, without trial and tribulation. And so over and over the Bible says, don't doubt God's promise to you when things are hard. It's going to get hard and And I believe as we get closer to the return of Christ, it's going to get worse. Like Paul says in the last days, um, evil men, imposters will get worse and worse. And I think that's the way it's going to play out. But God says, you can trust me no matter how dark it is. You can trust my promises. He keeps his promises. And so I, I think that's where the chapter starts in the context of all that's going on here. But what we also find is we find a a call to repentance to those who aren't trusting in Christ. So if you look at verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Obviously, in this part of the chapter, we have three angels. Uh, One angel proclaiming a gospel. One angel proclaiming the fall of Babylon. Another angel talking about the destiny of those who do not worship God, but worship the beast and his image. The gospel that's preached here is a gospel of warning. But it is a call to repentance. If you notice, it says in verse 6 that an angel flies through heaven or mid-heaven. And he has an eternal gospel to preach. And this gospel says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Which means the hour is almost here for God to judge the world. And the Old Testament talks about that over and over again. That God has an issue with the nations. The nations that have uh, blasphemed his name and refused to worship him. And at one point, or at some point, God says, I will bring the nations to judgment. And so here the angel says the hour of his judgment has come. And it says, worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. It's a call to repent, to fear him, to worship him. It's a call to turn from sin and to actually embrace the gospel, to embrace God. And the reason that this call of repentance is coming is because the world system is about to be judged. The Babylon, the idea of Babylon is a picture in the Bible of a society that is basically um, antagonistic to God. It's a godless society. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And they sought to build a tower to heaven and to basically to be self-sufficient and to achieve things apart from God. And so the fall of Babylon that's predicted is a fall of godless society. And then the next message that comes is that all those who will not receive God's offer of mercy in Christ, but instead worship the beast and worship Satan, ultimately there will be a just punishment It's interesting, tomorrow is Halloween. Obviously, most Christians celebrate Reformation Day or something different than Halloween. When I was a kid, uh, we grew up wearing costumes and going door-to-door trick-or-treating and that sort of thing. Halloween is an interesting holiday, and people look at it differently. Obviously, um, 
we think about it in terms of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg and the start of the Reformation and all those kinds of things, which is important, especially in light of the other ways that Halloween is talked about. Um, it's even uh, controversial uh, with regard to the roots of Halloween and what it might mean, but there are definitely those who see it as ultimately something that arose out of a fear of uh, the dead coming back and um, creating mischief for people. And so they began dressing up in costumes and doing different things to ward off evil spirits. So that's at least part of the history at some point, is that for some people, Halloween was about rescue from evil. For other people, like me when I was growing up, it was just fun and costumes and candy. For um, those who sell the candy and the costumes, it's all about money. So Halloween's about a lot of different things for different people. But there's no doubt that there are some who would say it is about the victory of evil. There are those who see uh, Halloween as a kind of way of celebrating evil and believing that evil will ultimately um, be victorious. And so there's all kinds of things about Halloween that are very, very interesting. And obviously there there are scary movies associated with Halloween. There's... Halloween Ends is the newest one that came out, and all kinds of movies which I don't go see, but it's interesting uh, when you think about um, the scariness that surrounds Halloween for a lot of people and how a lot of people seem to be drawn to that sort of thing. But the reality is the passage I just read is, to me, uh, more scary than anything you could see in the movie theater. The passage I just read was about... um, the wrath of God. It talks about in verse 10, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels means in the presence of those who live to to obey God. And in the presence of the Lamb means in the presence of the one who offered Mercy, which they rejected. And it goes on to say, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, not just one day or two days, but forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. To me, that is the scariest thing you could read. That is the scariest picture you could ever see. And and there are those who want to say, you're right, that is a scary picture, and so we just need to get rid of that picture. There are those like Rob Bell, who wrote a book back in 2011, I think it was, called Love Wins, and he questioned the whole doctrine of hell. And this is what he said about it. He said in the book, it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. The question is, why does the world desperately need to hear that if there is no hell? Why is there a need for a message of forgiveness if there is no consequence to our sin? 
There's a reason why there are those who would say to reject the doctrine of hell is to reject the cross and to reject Jesus because isn't that why Jesus came? Was to rescue us from that, to rescue us from the just consequence of our sin. And so when he says we need to get rid of hell, the reason why people react to that the way they do is because it does imply that we just need to chill out and not be so concerned about our sin because it's really not that bad. It really doesn't need someone to come and die in our place. That's part of the issue for us. But whenever we look at the issue of hell, it's helpful for me when I realize that there aren't too many criminals that look at a just punishment and are comfortable with it or think it's just. I mean, all of us know we're sinners. And to look at what the Bible says is a just punishment for our sin, it's very easy to say, well, I'm not comfortable with that, and I don't really think that's just. And it's like those who would say you go into prison and every person there is innocent and nobody believes that they deserve what they're getting. Unless there's been a work of grace done in their hearts. But what I want us to want to encourage us with is not to throw out parts of the Bible, but to understand them from a right perspective. Um, in Genesis 18.25, Abraham is talking to God about his impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The same language that's used in that passage about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is used here in Revelation 14. And Abraham says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, do what is just? The implication is, of course, of course. And Paul says in Romans 3, if our righteousness, excuse me, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be. So Paul says, in the strongest way he can say, is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? Certainly not. He's not unrighteous. He's doing what is just. So when I think about hell and and um, I think anybody who thinks about it seriously will will be appropriately disturbed, appropriately troubled. But we should be disturbed and troubled by it appropriately in this sense. By knowing that the Bible says hell is justice, not injustice, and heaven is mercy. So we have a picture of what justice looks like and a picture of what Mercy looks like. Hell is the ultimate answer to those who want a world without God. That's why C.S. Lewis could say things like, hell is locked from the inside. Because people don't want God, and hell is the consequence of that. No one is in hell for misdemeanors. Only those who have committed capital crimes. No one goes to hell for a misdemeanor, for a small infraction for a a little thing. Um, It's a just consequence 
of real evil, real sin. And as as proud sinners, we find that hard to believe that um, all of us actually deserve something like that. No one suffers anything in hell that is not just. And no one suffers in hell for one second longer than is just. If God is just, then as difficult as the doctrine of hell is, it must be a picture of what our sin looks, looks like and deserves. No one is in hell for someone else's sin. It's for their own sin. No one is in hell that did not have a real opportunity to receive mercy. I believe that. I believe the Bible talks about that in various ways. When it says things like, no one will stand before God with an excuse. They will be without excuse. I believe that includes the opportunity for mercy in some way, shape, or form that was rejected. And so for me, as I think about hell, I have to think about it in that context, the context of all that I just said. Um, There's a book we're going through on Sunday afternoons, uh, Good and Angry. And in that book, David Pallison talks about the wrath of God and how all of us get angry. The question is, are we getting angry about the right things? Is our anger righteous? So he talks about the righteous anger of God. And he talks about God's anger and God's wrath as the proper response of his love, which was a helpful thing to think about. He says this. He says, far from being a contradiction to love, God's anger comes from love. It's the product of love betrayed when he, God, is the one being done dirty. And it's the product of compassion for victims of injustice, meaning when others are the ones being hurt. So he's talking about the reality that um, God does what he does as a proper response to real sin, real evil against him, real evil against other people. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute, but let me go on and read the last verses of this chapter. Uh, But before I do that, let me just, one more reminder. It's so important to realize that this section, these three angels, uh, the first angel was an angel proclaiming gospel, calling people to repentance. That's significant in the context of this is what's going to happen to this godless society. This is what's going to happen to those who reject God. The gospel is right there in it all. And it's important because the Bible tells us, if you look at, for instance, the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 18, it says, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? It goes on in that same chapter to say, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And then in verse uh, chapter 33, it says, God tells Ezekiel, say to them, because they're saying, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck in our sins. We, we can't do anything. 
he tells Ezekiel to say to them, as I live, which says, by, I, I swear by my own character, I spare, swear by my own life, as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So we have to hear the verses on hell and God's just judgment of sinners in a context where he says, I'd rather show you mercy if you will come to me for mercy. I've provided a way in Jesus for that mercy to take place. But if there is a just consequence for our sin, and the only alternatives are someone else suffers that just consequence, or I have to suffer it, and I reject God's provision of a just consequence upon his own son, then there's no other alternative. The reality is we want God to be just, but we want his mercy. And he says, I'll be glad to give you my mercy. It's found in my son. Just receive him. <clears throat> well, let me read uh, the last part of the chapter and, and uh, we'll make some final uh, comments on what it says here. This is where we actually get the picture of the harvest. In verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The Lord Jesus himself talks about a harvest. You might remember the uh, parable of the tares. It tells the story of a man who plants uh, wheat, and an enemy goes in and plants tares among the wheat. And his servants um, come to him one day, and as the wheat and the tares are growing up together, they realize that tares have been sown among the wheat, and they say, should we tear out the tares? And he says, no, let them grow together until the harvest and then at the harvest, the, the wheat and the tares will be separated. And so after he tells that parable later on, the disciples come to him and say, could you explain to us what all that means? And the Lord Jesus said this, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of the Man, excuse me, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We live in a world that is, to some degree, the the fruit of people like uh, Nietzsche, philosophers like that. Nietzsche said, uh, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under his under one's feet. Basically, he says, if you get rid of faith in God, then you have no basis for Christian morality. And so when people say we want a secular government, we want a secular society, we don't want any reference to God at all. What we're basically doing is we're saying there is no God and that results in people coming to the conclusion there is no objective truth There's no transcendent meaning or purpose in life. There's no God-given rights. There's no objective standard of right and wrong. There's no afterlife, no coming judgment, no heaven and no hell. Then there's no reason to live any other way than what I want to live. I make my own reality. I define myself the way I want to. I choose to live the way I want to live. And no one can tell me I'm wrong because there is no God. There is no objective standard. There is no truth. There is no right and wrong. There is no life to come. And so what I do doesn't really matter. Um, There are those who have committed horrendous crimes believing that they would not answer for those crimes. And so the implications of denying what this chapter is talking about are great. And at the same time, you can argue that because God has put in all of us a knowledge of himself and a knowledge of right and wrong. And I believe a knowledge that justice must be served. It's interesting, again, if you go back to the whole issue of um, horror movies, which you would think, what does that have to do with anything? Someone wrote a book called Monsters from the Id, The Rise of Horror in Fiction and Film. And they tie at least some of what is going on in this realm to the French Revolution and and things that were going on in England and they talk about, you know, the Frankenstein story and um, those kinds of stories and how it was ultimately linked to the idea of the sexual revolution where, you know, we, we can just do whatever we want to do and yet realizing that there had to be a just response to that. And this is what he says in the book. The reward for turning man into a machine has always been sexual, but it has always had horror as its immediate consequence. If a man is simply the locus of local motions with no transcendent purpose, then he can do with his body what he wants. But if he can use other bodies in that fashion, then other bodies can also use him. And so the first thought which occurs following the transformation of man into a machine, i.e. someone who can just do whatever he wants with his body, sexual liberation and otherwise, that transformation of man into that kind of machine or that kind of being is quickly followed by the second thought, namely terror. If I can do that to them, 
the new, newly liberated human machine suddenly realizes then they can do that to me. The basic idea is if we argue that I'm free to do whatever I want, then there's also the reverse. Other people can do whatever they want to me. And life can result in some horrible situations. And so it's interesting, there are those who would also argue that the reason why, or at least one reason, not the only reason, one reason why people like to go to horror movies is because there is this connection between people doing things they shouldn't be doing and a monster showing up to do horrible things to them. They're doing horrible things, horrible things happen to them. It's almost this idea of there is justice in the world. It's going to play out. And it's almost like people go to see other people reap the justice they deserve, hoping that that, in a sense, will absolve them from the justice they deserve. It's it's one of those weird things. All I'm saying is there is within us the recognition that somehow this universe has to be just. There has to be justice. Uh, You might recall, um, if you watch the news lately, the Parkland um, shooter uh, recently was sentenced. He was sentenced to life in prison. He killed 17 people. um, And not everyone, in fact, many people were unhappy with the fact that he only got a life sentence. And the father of a 14-year-old who died in that shooting said, Today's ruling was yet another gut punch to so many of us. The monster that killed them gets to live another day. So what is that father saying? He killed my daughter mercilessly. He doesn't deserve to live. What is that? That's the response of that deserves justice. And justice means this, which means all of us have a sense of justice. All of us realize that there ought to be a proper response to sin. Now, not all of us may agree on whether or not all of our sin is really that bad. We tend to compartmentalize and put some sins in the bad category and our sins in the more okay category. But the reality is we all have a sense of justice. And that's why the Bible talks about the return of Christ as Christ rescuing his people and judging, bringing justice. That even if justice doesn't take place in this life, it will take place one day. And the Bible talks in a way that says believers actually see that as appropriate, that it's appropriate that justice be done. So we find in Second Thessalonians where it says, For after all, it is only just, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. So it talks in terms of justice. It's only just that God relieves his people from persecution and and all that's being done by those in the world who reject God and to give a just consequence to them. The reality is, God could say, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. I rather them to repent. And I say the same thing. I don't want to see anybody incur 
the just wrath of God. I long to see people come to Christ and be forgiven. And we should, and that's why we have the opportunity as God's people is to share the good news that there is escape from the wrath to come, and his name is Jesus. Well, just very quickly, let me um, encourage us. If you look at verse 12, this is really the application that's being made in this chapter for believers. He says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Another way that is tra- uh, translated is, Here is the call to perseverance. In light of all the evil that's going to take place in the world, and in light of how God is going to deal with that evil, what is the response of God's people to be? It's to be obedience, obedience to his commands, and trust, faith in the Lord Jesus. And so the first thing is perseverance. Um, God is saying, hang in there, don't give up, keep trusting and loving. There are going to be plenty of hard experiences, and there are going to be plenty of hard passages in the Bible, hard truth and hard trials, and hard truth and hard trials test our faith. Do I really believe God is good in light of passages like this? There's some who've walked away from the the faith saying, I can't believe God is good and read stuff like that in the Bible. Others have hard trials and hard experiences and they say, I can't believe God is good and go through something like what I've gone through. So it's a test of faith. When I read my Bible, it's a test of faith when I go through life. Do I believe God is good and that the issue is me and us and our sin and not God? And so that's why there's the call to persevere because we are tested uh, by the things we read and the things we experience. Now, I can believe in electricity and have a reasonable belief in, it, in, it, in electricity and yet not understand it. I might not fully understand all that the Bible is talking about and fully understand how it all works together, but I can believe that what God says is true and what God says must be right and must be understood in light of his love and his goodness. Well, the second thing is, it's a call not to walk away from Jesus. So we're to persevere, we're to hang on with all that's within us, and we're to hang on trusting not to walk away from Jesus. Rob Bell has walked away from Jesus. And part of the reason is because he reads passages like what I just read and said, I can't go along with that kind of idea. I can't believe that God is like that or would do that. And yet at the heart of the gospel is salvation from wrath. That's the heart of the Christian faith. It says in Romans 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Us? Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so Jesus dying on the cross is very much about rescuing us from the wrath to come. And that is the good news we have to share. And the book of Revelation speaks a lot about the wrath of Satan and the wrath of man. 
but it, it reminds us that it, those things are nothing compared to the wrath of God. We will lose things in this life, but the things we might lose in this life trusting God are nothing compared to losing everything if we reject God. The last thing is, don't take your own revenge. Keep on loving. The reason why I say that is, it says, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So we're to hang on, we're to persevere, we're to keep on trusting in Jesus as the key to being delivered from God's wrath, but also we're to keep his commandments. And his commandments are that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're to love each other in the body of Christ, and therefore, Paul could say in Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If God says, it's not your job to punish people for their sin against you or anybody else, that's my job. I'll take care of that. I'll either take care of it through the cross, if they trust in Christ, or I'll take care of it on judgment day when all is said and done. But it's not your job to punish people for their sin against you or anybody else. It's your job to overcome evil with good. We can't be evil and overcome evil. We can't throw fuel on a fire and put out the fire. And that's why the Bible says, don't take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. And so the, the reality is the truth of God's wrath is actually something that's meant to make me more loving, not less loving. I don't go around saying I'm glad you're going where you're going. No, I want the exact opposite. And I show the love of Christ, even when I'm being rejected. So the gospel says we have sinned against God and we deserve a just punishment. And that's what this chapter is about. But the good news is Jesus is an able and willing Savior for us. And that's the good news we have to proclaim. And I commend Jesus to us all that he is able and willing to save you and everybody you know and everybody you meet, and we have good news to share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to see how it is meant to encourage us to love you more and trust you more, how it's meant to encourage us to love others more and to share the gospel more and to be ready to forgive and not take our own revenge how it's meant to encourage us to persevere in the face of both hard trials and hard truth. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us to persevere, and that you'd help us to share the good news of Jesus, the good news of a Savior from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you that there is good news to share, that you are merciful. And you would rather see people come to Christ and be saved than to incur your wrath. And I pray that that would be our heart as well. Please prepare us now for the Lord's Supper and for our celebration of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.